0: Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis Jones.
1: What's up, Tyler? How are you doing? I am good. Good, Phil. How are you? Great. So today, our this episode today, I'm excited about it. We got to chat with Rand Fishkin of Moz, mm-hmm. and he is a leader in the SEO world, search engine optimization. Um, you randomly ran into him at a Trump protest, right? I
0: ran into him. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did. I was uh, protesting our president, Donald Trump, Um, if that makes you click off of our podcast, I apologize. Um, (laughs) anyways, um, yeah, we were, we were down there. Uh, we, you and I had both seen him speak in New York, um, a week before that, this was back in January and, uh, we had to have him on the podcast. So he's a really awesome guy. Um, he's doing some pretty amazing things uh, with Moz. If you're right. familiar, they're an SEO company. Right, so Moz is an SEO company. They help other companies
1: um, get found on web searches. That's what and they so do.
0: We talk a little bit about
1: that, actually a lot about that. So if you have a website and you want to get more exposure naturally, he has some great tips for you. And then um, he founded Moz right? And sort of it's his baby, it's his company. It's grown into this big thing. But um he talks about sort of that process and some of the struggles that come along with growing a big tech company. Mm-hmm. Um especially in today's world where um investors want certain things of you. So yeah um he's wears his heart on his sleeve.
0: Um yeah, one of the most human uh founders that I've ever met for sure. Totally. Um, I, I think in this startup world you kind of have to be this stoic knows everything on the cutting edge of everything all the time Uh, you never sleep and he just he just talks about what that that experience was like so
1: totally yeah so we hope you enjoy the episode and thanks for listening
0: all right welcome seattle
1: i'm tyler and i'm phil and today we are here with rand fishkin rand is the founder of Moz here in seattle Moz is a, a local company, a leader in the field of search engine optimization tools and resources. He was named among the thir- uh, 30 best young tech entrepreneurs under 30 by Businessweek. Congrats about that. Um, he's been featured in many publications. He keynotes around the world. You can follow him on Twitter at RandFish. And you can also see his SEO wizardry, wizardry on Friday videos at Moz on Twitter. So Rand, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it.
1: So Moz is a Seattle-based company. Um, Give us a little context about what Moz does and what your role there is, and then maybe where do you call home here in Seattle?
2: Sure. Yeah. So Moz is a company I started initially as a blog back in 2004, and then it turned into an SEO consulting business, right? Helping people of all kinds and organizations and businesses uh, get higher rankings on search engines like Google. And... In 2007, uh, we launched a bit of software. Uh, we didn't really realize what software as a subscription was, SaaS, S-A-A-S, if you've heard of that. Uh, but it turned out that was a great move. <laughs> <laughs> Revenue started growing fast. Um, we had lots of customers. We had built up this audience through our bro- blog, and many of those people became subscribers. And, so lo- and the SEO profession was... Growing massively and, and continues to grow massively because Google is so popular. Turns out people like searching, right? Mm. They're like looking for stuff and finding
0: it. Google not going anywhere, huh? Not going Not a fad. Not, okay.
1: not a fad at all. Um, can you pause right there for people in our audience that might not have any idea what SEO is? Sure. What can just explain it to us like we're four years old or oh, something? Oh, sure. So
2: uh, when you search in Google, you'll see two types of results typically. Uh, one of those types of results are paid advertising results, and they have mm-hmm. a little You know they used to be highlighted in blue or orange or whatever, and were very obvious. Now they have just a tiny little box next to them that says "Add." Those are things that people can pay to bid on. So if you search for Seattle real estate, right? Maybe Windermere is bidding, or John L. Scott, or whoever it is, right, is bidding. You know, I'll pay five dollars and seventy-five cents per click to have someone, you know, to have my ad appear. And if anybody clicks it, I pay Google that those five bucks. That's where. You know Google's whatever sixty billion dollars in advertising revenue each year comes from uh, the vast majority of it anyway. Then there's a second kind of result, the kind of result that no one pays for, that Google, as they say, algorithmically comes up with a good answer for you. So if you search for everything, you know, if you search for Seattle real estate, it's very popular. You know maybe maybe Tyler has a great website and his website comes up uh, because you know he's done some great work to earn that position and that earning of the position is what's called SEO. So there's all sorts of things that go into Google deciding to rank something above something else. Uh, that is what people in my field study. They use tools like the, the software that that we build at Moz uh, to help understand what's going on at Google and why something's ranking ahead of something else and what they can do to get their site to rank. It's a very competitive field, yeah. but obviously you know, it's insanely powerful to be... Uh, ranking for something that someone 's searching for in the organic results you 're paying nothing you 're getting potentially hundreds or thousands of people a day who said, "I want this exact thing. Guess what you have that exact thing mm. so that that customer acquisition uh, format is just you know mind blowing in terms of the the you know relative return on investment
1: to cost right. And that would be extremely, like you said, not only powerful but crucial for a small business or a company to be ranking high, right? Because if you're not found in Google, then I, you almost don't exist, right? Mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, you know, it's
2: sort of like, I mean, when we think about the the world of real estate, uh, particularly commercial real estate, right? So if you if if you make the analogy there, it's sort of like being off the the only main street in town or a 25 minute drive out of town, and that's really what page two is. You know, page two in Google, uh, fewer than five percent of searchers will ever click to page two. Wow. Uh, you know, the the top three to five results are getting all the visibility and an overwhelming portion of the traffic. And so, are people skipping ads? I mean, I know I do. Y- yes, yeah. actually. So, despite Google making ads incredibly subtle, uh, we expected that ads would have this you know relatively high click through rate. So. Uh, We actually just looked at a bunch of data from a company in California called JumpShot. Um, And JumpShot does uh, some very cool stuff, at least in in my opinion, super cool. Some people have privacy problems with it. But basically, uh, when many, many folks are using the internet uh, on their desktop or their mobile device, um, those clicks are being recorded and anonymized. So Mm. JumpShot can tell us. You know, yesterday, fifty. we saw 50 people who visited this website and clicked onto this page on this website. Um, they won't tell you who they are, but, you know, there's a lot of data. You see that. the traffic. Yeah, you can right. see the trend. And so we analyzed, you know, millions and millions of search visitors. This was from October of last year. And looked at, you know, what's the click-through rates there. It turns out in the, in the ad results, um, I think they get, uh, about on, on a mobile device, which mobile search is a little more popular than desktop because everyone has this thing in their pocket now. Right? Uh, they get about two and a half percent of all the clicks. Those go to the paid ads. Uh, the organic results, the non-paid, get uh, another get almost sixty percent. And then there's about you know forty percent of people who don't click at all which which m- makes good sense right google answers a lot of your search queries right in the results you never have to click on anything you know if you search for um the edmonton oilers uh they'll give you the score from last night's game right for those of us in the united states uh, apparently there's a hockey playoff going on right now. <laughs> i wouldn't have known. I, w- I was actually so i was in Mestal edmonton <laughs> uh, speaking at an event and they, they had me put on a, oh, an oilers yeah. jersey nice. and like go to a go to a restaurant and we watch the game there. It's actually kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah. you go. So, I felt like I'd reach peak Canada.
1: Yeah. <laughs> nice. So you, I think I referenced Moz as a local company, but you're a global company that was founded here. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have 155
2: employees. 151 of those are here in Seattle Okay. Uh, at our offices downtown. Uh, we are global. So we, um, with the exception of China, Russia, and korea which which those three countries have different search engines Mm. that are their primary in russia it's yandex in china it's baidu and korea it's neighbor gotcha uh we we serve people in pretty much every other country
1: so were you just how i mean you said it started as a blog were you was this just an idea in your head you started writing (laughs) and you're sitting in a coffee shop and at mushrooms from there or right because you're
0: you're formerly UW guy yeah and you and you left, you I dropped, dropped out. out. Yep. Man, what a this typical like a, startup oh, founder, know. Uh, you know, mentality. Um, if only I'd gotten rich and famous in the process, I then mean, it could be I, really. I'd say you're pretty famous. I don't know about your financials, but you know. Well, let's. I I rent an apartment on Capitol Hill. Nice. Okay. Um, so you have no money, and I've never saying. owned a car.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I walk to work, so that's really. There convenient. you go. But that is really convenient. That uh, that. Amazing two thousand and three Kia Spectra, fine specimen o- of an automobile with lots of transmission problems. Nice. That is my wife's. Nice. Um, she bought it before we were married, but of course she let me borrow it this morning. It was great.
0: That was yeah. very kind of her. <laughs> we, we
2: appreciate it. Uh, so, that. I, yeah, um, you would ask where I live. I live on on Capitol
1: Hill. And when you're starting this this blog, is it how, just real quick? How did that take, go from oh, blog sure. status
2: to? So at the time. I, when I dropped out of school, it was to build websites uh, for my mom's, you know, she was a small business marketing consultant, and her clients started needing websites, mm. and I like building websites. Uh, and so when I dropped out of school, that's what I was doing full time, but we were terrible at it, and lost tons of money, and went mm. deeply into debt, and... Um, then couldn't make the minimum payments on our debt, which which really balloons your debt right. uh, pretty fast. And so we couldn't pay our subcontractors who were helping the websites do SEO, but they were, it was still in the contract that we would you know, provide SEO, SEO. services. Gotcha. So it was one of those, hey, Rand, you're going to have to go learn this. And at the time, uh, SEO was very, very opaque. The search engines were even more secretive than they are today. Mm. Uh, and that frustrated the crap out of me. I. I strongly dislike secrecy. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very transparent guy. And so I sort of turned all my uh, my anger at things in the past that I'd been upset about the secrecy of at Google mm. and, uh, and sort of made it my mission. Then the name uh, Moz, it was initially called SEO Moz. The name Moz comes from this idea of wanting to make things uh, open and transparent. So uh, Moz was used by a bunch of people, Mozilla Foundation, most notably, but DMoz, the open directory project, and ChefMoz, the open recipe search.
0: Mm. A lot of those other ones died,
2: and so we got Moz.com. Wow. That's
0: great. And the rest is history. Well, so speaking of of SEO kind of being this uh, vague, um, you know, a lot of people didn't really understand it, and I feel like you guys brought a lot of light um, and... Knowledge to the table, which I know Google is just constantly changing. At the same time, yeah. uh, but I, I personally, I went to uh, MozCon 2012. Oh yeah, yeah, which was actually profound. You, you touched my heart. <laughs> there is something that you said. You got up on stage, um, and all that day. That day, I think you were wearing like this, like really cool looking shirt, and you looked all like I mean, just as cool as you look today, <laughs> right? Um, but you got up there, and you had this kind of. Um, Oversized soccer jersey, I think. Do oh, you the remember Barcelona this? jersey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah someone yeah. and uh, you and you got up there and gave this incredibly heartfelt speech about how, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretending to be something that I'm not, and this jersey is me. Yeah, yeah. And like, I don't care. And like, I just want to be who I am. It was like I, it was so profound to me because and I think you you drew the parallel to being just being yourself online is actually what's most important, being authentic. Um, and it seems like you continue that same type of like, you know, lifestyle to this day or whatever. But going back to MozCon, I mean, like, um, how how did you guys uh, one keep up with Google? I guess I'm I'm just making this sure, yeah. question up as I go. But um, how did you actually keep up with that and then create really an industry of of SEO professionals?
2: Well, so I hmm, I might take issue with that. I think that I think the SEO industry existed before and would exist largely without Moz I think okay. one of the things that Moz did certainly is to make SEO more accessible mm. uh, especially for you know beginner and intermediate folks I think a lot of advanced people and experts know as much or more than you know I do or we did uh, and helping helping folks learn something that someone else is trying to keep secret that that really drives me, right? I, I love doing that, especially, you know, Google has, for the last decade, been one of the world's most powerful companies. I think they're um, certainly in the top five right now, maybe, maybe top two or three. And the fact that they own and control so much of the flow of information um, that they can influence uh, so dramatically, you know, the results of how people... Feel about something, or what they can discover, or the the you know the rabbit holes that uh, that folks can go down for good or bad. Mm. Um, that I think needs to be held in check by a degree of transparency and understanding. Mm. And so, you know, we, I invested deeply in that early in my career and have continued to. And that's through you know running tests and experiments. Uh, it's through um, crawling the web the same way Google does and building our own index uh, of the link graph, which is one of the, yeah. you know, the links between websites are a big part of what Google uses to rank. If, if you know, many, many other people uh, around the world link to your real estate website, chances are good that you will outrank people who have very few links or right. who have links from very non-authoritative websites or who have links from places that make, no sense for them to link to mm-hmm. a real estate website,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and uh, that that project is specifically why we raised venture capital. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically, I had I had this kind of dream, like, hey, what if we could build the back end of Google? Uh, if we could do that, you know, we could really uncover what's going on here. Mm. Um, we could provide a tremendous amount more detail uh, to beginners and experts alike. And so, in 2007, we raised 1.1 million from uh, Ignition Partners, mm-hmm. who uh, they are over in Bellevue, a uh, bunch of like ex-Macaw Cellular and um, Microsoft gotcha. folks. Okay. Uh, Michelle Goldberg from Ignition Partners joined our board, and then um, we also raised $100,000 from a guy named Kelly Smith, um, who ran a few startups here in Seattle and uh, was partnering with some folks in a small fund called Curious Office. So mm. I I'll be honest. Michelle emailed me probably summer of two thousand seven and uh, I had to Google Venture capital. It's <laughs> nice. I was like, okay, wait. <laughs> what is that? What are they going to do? <laughs> like, right. Does that mean they own and run your company? And like, I don't get to do it anymore now. Um, but you know we had our the, the, uh, there's a lot of challenges with with raising venture capital and going into that world, too. You know, it it allows you to do a lot of things you couldn't do organically on your own, but um, it creates a pretty binary outcome set. Mm. Right? So, like, for example, I will tell you, uh, Moz last year grew about uh, 10% year over year. Um, we uh, had been... Burning cash for a long time, and last year we got profitable again. We did uh, about forty-two and a half million dollars in revenue, um, and for you know, for a privately held company, you'd be like, "Wow, that is great. That's fantastic. Congratulations! Like, way to go!" And in the venture capital world, uh, that is like a ooh, kind of mm. on death's door, huh? Like, that's that kind of sucks. Mm. Um and that is because that growth rate simply isn't high enough mm. to be particularly interesting. And for, you know, for for venture capital investors that this is weird to say, right, but they'd sort of prefer that like if you're not gonna be a huge hit and make them hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, like please just die and go away so mm. that you're not wasting my time so that I can go find that company that is. And that's not them being heartless, that's their whole model, right? Their model is find a Google or an Amazon or an right. Uber, um, or an Airbnb, not, Hey, let me help a bunch of like, you know, mid market, tens of millions in revenue growing slowly, but profitable and nice mm. companies like not, That's not the VC model.
1: Well, and you're, but you're also bringing value to your users, which that's the flip side of what, which is mildly interesting to an investor, <laughs> okay. but not really. Right. right.
2: Like, okay. um, yeah, I, I would say that certainly uh, the human side of people like Michelle and and you know um, Seth, who's on our board from Foundry, which is a, a VC in Colorado that we raise money from. Uh, those they they want us to provide value. They want us to have a great product, right? But that is not their structural professional incentive. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you- I'm actually writing a book that's going to be out next year, all nice. about like. Okay. Uh, the weird, crazy biases that Silicon Valley startup culture, mm. and by extension uh, VC, causes entrepreneurs to have.
0: Yeah, that's what—that's actually was my next question. Was like, do you think the VC model has uh, perpetuated this idea of churn and burn? And like, I—I I heard a—I heard a quote once that's like, uh, you can grow two ways: you can grow fat, and you can grow strong, mm. right? Or you're dying, mm. and. Um, one of my my good friends, Brian Pape, he runs Mirror. I don't know if you know. Uh, they're down on Stoneway. They're in the Brooks building. It's mm. like a little coffee shop, but they um, they sell beer, and then they make products that give back to – anyways, it's cool. cool. We have a podcast. You should go listen to it. It's, I, I, think the I 40, shall. I episode shall. four. Really great guy. Really good story. Um, anyways, uh, he was talking about um, all of the uh, – all of all of the people he's spoken to and all of the mentors he's had was long, steady, sustained growth is the way that you are a hundred year company rather than a you know a five year company. So it's just interesting that that but that a hundred seems year to be the model, you know? yeah, a hundred
2: year company does not work for a venture capital because fund. they're
0: just looking for the massive amount of return.
2: Well, massive amount of return, and they only their fund life cycle is typically seven to ten years, mm-hmm. right? So so LPs. They're limited partners, right? So uh, um, a university endowment, right? The University of Washington has massive, you know, multi-billion dollar endowment. I don't know, Harvard has like a 50 billion or 100 billion endowment. I can't remember. It's huge. Um, uh, Pension funds, you know, have these billions of dollars sitting around. Uh, Some high net worth individuals have, you know, billion dollars sitting around in the bank. And what typically happens is that like, Anyone else with tons of money, they do allocation of those portfolios into higher and lower risk forms of investments. Mm. And, and venture is definitely a higher risk category. So they'll take a small amount, right? So the University of Washington might say, hey, you know what? We're going to put $100 million of our $5 billion endowment. I don't actually know how much they have off the top of my head, but uh, we're going to take that and we're going to put it in venture. So they'll interview a few venture companies and they'll be like, you know what, we're going to give 50 million to these guys and 50 million to those guys. We think they're good bets. And we expect them to return somewhere between uh, you know, 150% and 1,000% of those uh, over the next seven to 10 years. And there's only one way to do that. And that is to put a few million dollars to work into somebody like an Uber mm. and own Multiple billions of dollars worth of capital 10 years from now because of that investment. Got it. And so what they do is they go out and they try and find companies that are skyrocketing, right? Right. That are absolutely, um, you know, remaking entire field or becoming a monopoly in their space. Um, And that is their, that is their bias. And then, you know, the, the rates for venture capital investment are, you know, if a, if you boil it down, I think it's something like if there's 10, fu- 10 companies that get invested in, seven of those are going to die completely.
1: Mm.
2: Within their first few years, they'll, they'll go bankrupt. They'll, they'll die. Uh, two of them will do okay. They'll sort of return uh, two to five times their investment. And then one company out of 10 will usually be responsible for making all of the returns mm. of the fund. And so the other nine... You know, the venture capitalists are like, yeah, yeah, we we want to help you and support you, and we like entrepreneurs. And But if you're not that one...
0: You're not getting our time necessarily, yeah. Yeah. As, or as, as much.
2: As much, or yeah. our interests certainly, yeah. you know, you're not helping us accomplish our goals. Got
1: and, it. Yep. So from your seat then, what's that, you said 10% growth last year, which sounds great to us, but <laughs> not great to the VCs. No. So what, where does that leave you as founder and... Evangelist yeah. of the company, and like, yeah. what's the next step? I guess, or well, I mean, where I, I think
2: that the you know the goal that the board is pushing towards is try and find that growth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we? And and so, what's interesting is there will be, and there is, right? I, um, I'm not sure my board would be thrilled with me talking about it, but there's definitely conflict on the board, right? So mm-hmm. my side of the equation is this company is worth a tremendous amount of money. It's growing. It's growing in a field that. Uh, is going to have value and need to exist for decades to come. Right. Uh, I don't see search going anywhere. So let's do what we can to keep it alive and continue to grow, and let's work on the fundamentals and serve our customers better. And they're sort of like, how do we do things that are high risk but potential high return in the company? Like Maybe we could do a super risky you know, acquisition, or we could try some super risky new strategy. If it has a Twenty or thirty percent odds of paying off and a seventy percent odds of killing the company—that's kind of exactly what we're looking for, right? Oh, and that's not wow, what I'm looking yeah. for at all, right? Because
0: this is your baby too, this right? This is my baby. Like, this is my like identity. This is my yeah. life. Yeah, that sucks,
2: man. Well, I, no, but it, it does. makes for a healthy tension. But it does.
0: It, no, it but is that's, no fun
2: not being on the same side as the. You know,
0: that's on shitty. Everybody.
2: That sucks. <laughs> we're gonna have yeah. to put the explicit thing just because. But that's. <laughs> That's, o- that's okay, because yeah. that was worth well, it. I do think, I mean, one thing is that I, I think when a lot of people, especially in Seattle mm-hmm. and San Francisco, right, you look at a ton of companies that are venture-backed, they're in technology, right, they're they're um, driving up real estate prices, and they're creating all these millionaires and all this kind of thing. And I think it pays to understand sort of the dynamics behind that, and understand why these companies do what they do, right? Like, what uh, A lot of folks that I know look at venture-backed firms and say, why do they take these crazy risks and then go out of business? Why are they backing these, you know, clearly insane, often unethical entrepreneurs? And the answer is, well, sometimes those are the people, oftentimes those are the people who tank a company. And then one out of 10 times, they're the, the people who, you know, produce a, a
0: moonshot. Mm-hmm. Man, that's tough. Yeah. I don't know. I just I look at my own personal business and I'm just kind of like, man, steady like 10% growth year over oh, year. Sure. I would take that all day. Right? Right? Cuz that's that's healthy, it's sustainable, it's long term, right? You probably have a moment to like breathe. And <laughs> well in in some, in some capacity like
2: yeah, for for, for the first 7 years, uh, we grew at hundred percent year over year. So, you know, then it's weird too. Which is probably
0: why VCs perk their ears up too, I would imagine. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure.
2: Uh, But yeah, it's weird that the Delta in treatment is fascinating, Mm. right? Like it was one of those, my inbox uh, and my schedule uh, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, were filled with a very different sort of feeling than they are today, right? So today, it's a lot of people who are, uh, you know, customers and mm-hmm. um, lots of folks who want me to talk about SEO and that kind of stuff. But back then, there was like, this is insane. I got invited to Sheryl Sandberg's house for dinner once. Yeah. That's, that's kind nice. of crazy.
1: Yeah.
2: crazy. <laughs> uh, she's the COO of Facebook. Yeah. For, for yeah folks might not know. Lean but, In, right? And the author of Lean In, yeah. Fantastic book. Uh, and I... I I have some issues with it, but yes, overall, I agree. Yeah? Yeah,
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Go for
2: it. This is the Rand Rants at You podcast. Um, (laughs) Perfectly fine. (laughs) Sponsored today by not VCs. Uh, (laughs) Totally pulling all their... (laughs) It's going to be very difficult for me to raise money after this. Um, (laughs) So, uh, no, uh, I guess my primary issue with Lean In is just that I think it it puts far too much of the onus on women uh, in the professional world themselves Mm. to work harder and to have more drive in Mm. order to uh, improve sort of their lot in their profession or their working world. When, in fact, I think there are a tremendous number of structural and cultural and economic and historical forces that work actively against women. Mm. And I would have loved to have seen those equally explored I do think it's a wonderful thing to tell to tell women and to tell men and to tell people of all kinds right hey like here are great ways to um, enhance your skills and to um, you know deliver the best that you can at your job but I don't I don't love not recognizing these forces Mm. that clearly hold women back I mean uh, you know I would love to think of Moz as um, a place where, you know, I hope I hope one hundred percent, but probably not one hundred percent of people who work there would describe themselves as feminists. Mm. I hope that they would uh, describe themselves as people who, um, you know, uh, fight for the the rights of people who are underprivileged Mm -hmm. and who've been historically disadvantaged. Uh, But even at Moz. Uh, I I had a conversation with a woman engineer oh man 3 weeks ago 4 weeks mm-hmm. ago and I I told her that I felt really crappy because I thought she was getting not listened to mm. in meetings the way she should have and I was really worried that it was because she was a woman and she said oh definitely mm. like I've worked other places right this is this is normal behavior and I was like well that as not, if she just
1: accepted it sort of Yeah,
2: right? Mm. Like as if she was like, well, I don't know if accepted is the right word, but certainly recognized and processed it long before I did. Mm. Um but yeah, that that kind of crap. I mean, I think she I think this this woman would probably be in a far more senior position if she were just a dude. Right? Mm. <laughs> like and that's
0: that's yeah. crap, right? That's yeah.
2: total BS. It's not that she doesn't work hard. It's not that she doesn't have the intelligence and the skills and the capability. It's that it's very tough to um, walk into a lot of rooms and you know, that, that experience that a lot of women in technology describe where, yeah. well, I'm a software engineer. I've done, you know, all these things. And then I walk into a room and they're like, oh, uh, are you in someone's admin? Mm. It's, yeah. That would never happen to a guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, That's the worst.
1: That the stories sucks. coming out of Uber are in the headlines, you know, with how women experience, oh um, life there. But is that, I mean, is that just Uber is kind of the poster child right now, but is that just commonplace in the tech world?
2: Uh, I think it is. I think it probably is. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's going to be a long, hard fight to stop that. Yeah, and I yeah. think it's a um, it's cultural, and it's um, a lot of it is like little tiny micro interactions. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just when we describe a software engineer, we're going to default our thinking to, well, it must be a young white or Asian guy, right? Mm. <laughs> okay? Like that's those are the only. Archetypes that yeah. Hollywood has ever created. That's the only. Um, that's that's the box we put them in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that I, is I, interesting. Uh, I heard someone give the theory that weird science is responsible hmm. for um, men
0: being dominant in. C- A throwback to weird science. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. So, like, yeah. uh, until
2: until 1983 or four,
0: you, um,
2: th- the percent of women who are going into computer science in in college and graduating with. Uh, Uh, computer science degrees was proportional to and actually rising compared to all other, uh, science and engineering Mm -hmm. degrees. And then post weird science and a number of other eighties movies that featured almost exclusively dudes being, um, programmers, it dropped precipitously until, you know, by the end of the nineties, it was something like 4%. Wow. Um, and so there's a, there's a representation theory, uh, around this. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's so interesting yeah. well uh, being a pro lean in uh, no, no it has good things it has yeah, good not, things no, for yeah. sure but I, I know my wife uh, she got uh, we we have a daughter right um, who's two she's at the Gates Foundation so she has a year of maternity your so.
2: daughter's two and at the Gates Foundation no no no, no. My, she's my brilliant
0: <laughs> my wife is at the Gates Foundation got it got it so my wife uh was able to get a year of maternity. Right. Oh, so awesome. she, she, and then she's guaranteed either the same job or at least a equal job when she returns. Right. So the systems that are set into place, um, very much, uh, allow her to return, uh, and continue to like exist in this world and procreate and do all of that other like amazing, beautiful thing stuff. Whereas I know a lot of women have to put their career on hold if they actually want to start a family. Um, but she has felt very empowered, I think, by the message of Lean In and how it's okay to be a mom. It's okay to like oh, yeah. say no. It's okay to be like um, to work and then come home and be fully present there, right? But I do see how it puts even more stress on like women just being even more perfect. Yeah, right, right. right. They already have that on on their backs anyways. But it's like if you can just lean in a little bit more. Um, so I, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, we we sidetracked. Sorry about that, but that's that's good. That's really good. <laughs> hey, so in a from a blog post a few a year
1: and a half ago, two years ago, you were describing um, some of the the circumstances surrounding your transition from CEO to not CEO, and you referenced a story uh, from your grandfather, a lesson that he taught you. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and he, I think basically, you had either. I'm um, given a talk or written an article, blog post yeah blog post, and he sort of coached you in a grandpa sort of way to be maybe less authoritative or haughty in your in your delivery. How does is that it sounds like uh, connecting the dots between like your conversation with that woman programmer and the um, maybe your interactions with the board. is that something is that lesson still informing your interactions today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, I try
2: and live up to that advice, but I don't know that I always do a great job. You know, I think that... So my my grandfather, you know, this Moz was very much like a family company. I know mm. it's weird that a software startup in this high-tech world would be a family company, but it, it really was. Um, so, you know, I was working with my mom, and then my, my grandfather uh, had a math and engineering background. And so when I was, you know, analyzing a lot of the... Um, papers that Google was putting out and trying to understand their their algorithms and that kind of stuff um, and patent applications. My grandfather would sort of read through them with me and explain to me what they meant and how I could parse these things. Uh, and then I would write about them on, on our blog. In fact, I think my grandfather wrote a couple articles on oh, cool. our blog too. Uh, and yeah, in this particular case, he sort of had a, I think this I think this blog post is good, but rather than saying, you know, Trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Uh, y- you know, I'm I'm the authority on this subject. Take a more humble approach, right? Mm. In the voice and tone of the information you're presenting, right? Like mm. a Here's what the paper says. Here's how I interpreted that. Mm. Your interpretation could vary. Um, and I think that's been really, really good advice, especially when I present uh, externally, right? To have that, to come from a place of humility, to not assume that. People should trust me just because, whatever I run a popular blog. I don't know, right? Um, and and that's certainly been good advice. I don't know, um, you know, in my board interactions, I I sort of still take a like, but I made this thing. <laughs> like mm. maybe, right? Maybe, maybe we could just try doing it my way a couple of times. I don't know, but yeah, yeah. Um, I still I think I still often think of of Moz as my baby too much mm. um, and more than I should. and I need to eventually get comfortable with the idea that you know that that November when I raised a round of capital, it became not my company mm. and um, and certainly it's only trended away from that. So uh, it's still a great company to work at, but it's not mine
0: right mm. yeah. So take us through. That process, right? Because I I would imagine um, I've been, um, I've had to, I've stepped away from jobs due to lack of funding, right? Like where I had my full identity wrapped up in it. Um, Nothing like this whole thing of starting my own company. So take us through that process. What was going on in your head? Oh, yeah. So, uh, so
2: stepping down as CEO, that was precipitated. by an episode uh, with depression, mm-hmm. actually, so I- had, I could see it. And I'm not, I am not 100% sure whether uh, depression caused me to be not a great CEO, which hurt some of our performance, or whether us having not great performance or sort of slipping, this was 2013, 14, um, sort of triggered some of that depression stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or whether they're totally independent of one another, and it's just coincidence that they overlapped. Uh, but certainly, I think that my my executive team and my board kind of recognize. I, I had a call with uh, one of my investors, Brad Feld, um, who's since stepped off the board and been replaced by one of his his other partners. But but Brad and I are still close, and you know, Brad basically said like, "Hey, man, you you can't function like this. Like this is you need to do." something else like something to get you know uh get out of this str- world of stress and get back to sleeping normally and get back mm-hmm. to being an okay person like Rand, the human being is fallen off a cliff here
0: mm. um
2: and it and that that was totally right and so we jointly i actually made the suggestion that we promote uh, my longtime chief operating officer sarah bird uh to the role and sarah's been ceo for three years now and, um, I think done a, you know, done a solid job sort of fixing a lot of structural problems in the company and, um, yeah, earning a lot of people's respect. Um, and yeah, I hope, you know, I I hope she can take the company to great places. Obviously I have a huge financial incentive, but also a lot of like personal, Mm -hmm. um, whatever you want to call it, like ego and hope and, uh, identity riding
1: on Moz doing well. Right. Yeah, of course. You are talking about the the catalyst, right? Whether it was struggles at the company or um, struggles, I guess, within your own body that yeah. sort of kicked off that depression. Um, it seems like a con- it's not often talked about, but I have heard it f- somewhat frequently, especially here in Seattle, where there's a lot of startups, a lot of founders and CEOs that live here and their companies are started here what's, it seems there's a connection between being a founder, being a CEO and experiencing depression. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Is it just simply that you're like, you're at the top, you're feel isolated and that leads to negative thoughts and that spirals out of control or pressure? What is, from your vantage point, what's that connection?
2: So I, uh, I've read a number of pieces that, uh, people who are more likely to Start their own projects, companies, organizations are are also people who, uh, even prior to that, are more likely to experience uh, severe anxiety and depression. Yeah. Mm. And so, I I'm not sure which way the the causality of the correlation runs. Like it, it could be the case that you know these stresses that that CEOs experience, but but CEOs also have a you know a tremendous amount of influence over their own lives and mm. a lot of control you do have a tremendous amount of responsibility. um, You know, when, when people complain about uh, CEO's performance or like, you know, what, what Sarah's doing or something like that, my, my traditional response is it is a shit job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I really, it's terrible. It's an awful job. Um, I don't, I still don't like the pay discrepancy. Right. Mm -hmm. And at Moz, uh, you know, Let's see. Sarah probably makes I don't know, not even twice what most of the engineers do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe twice, but you know, uh, certainly not the fifty or hundred times that you hear about with public companies. Mm-hmm. So, public company CEO, kind of a different story there. But uh, the you know, um, the pressure and stress is real. The, the feeling like everyone's job is in your hands, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, the competing pressures of let's not do anything stupid that could get people laid off, and also let's do lots of stupid things because we need you know our, our investors need us yeah. to
0: take high risks, yeah. right? That uh, balancing yeah. that that is mm-hmm. not fun. Uh, so your next book is going to be why not to be a CEO and <laughs> startup uh, founder. I mean, yeah. yeah,
2: it's not it's not why not to do it. It's just like. My experience has been that if you understand an ecosystem before you dive in, you can be much healthier and and um, much better equipped to handle it. Right? Yeah. I think it's the it's the unknowns that, that drive you crazy once you find yourself in something. Right? Mm-hmm. Like you never prepared for it. You never thought about it. You never talked about it with. You know, your partner, your spouse, you didn't talk about it with your team because you didn't know it existed.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so, yeah, this book that I'm working on is really trying to say, hey, here's all this stuff that you will encounter yeah. when you're in this world. And that's, you know, as a startup employee or a founder, but just that's, be prepared. That's great.
1: Well, I would think, too, that on, on the journey from startup, like um, the, the very beginning to maybe like let's say an IPO. Yeah. There are probably many moments where the CEO, who knows if anyone knows how the sausage is made at the company or like what's going wrong at the company, is probably the CEO, right? So there are probably many, many points where it feels like you're on this cliff that you're about to crash and burn. Yeah. Um, and so to live that, experience that, and um, know that not everybody knows what's going on and like it feels like things are spiraling out of control, um, that would be a. Up and down roller coaster. That would be very difficult to.
2: I, I think this is one of the other challenges that I always had as CEO. Um, and it's a good point. The, one of the things that I am deeply committed to is transparency. Mm-hmm. But telling your team, "Hey, we're at the edge of this cliff. We're all about to fall off." <laughs> right. It's not always the most productive way <laughs> to get not really people's, motivating. you know, trust and yeah, um, and best work. And so even even sometimes when you're feeling like that, you know, you have to be able to control your emotions and see Mm -hmm. the big picture and step back a little bit. Um, and I was, I was never great at that, right? Mm -hmm. Like a lot of my, especially that, that last year that I was CEO, um, a lot of my, you know, internal emails and presentations, to the company and conversations with people were, you know, well, this is the end. (laughs) Welcome to it. And, you know, the end in my view was us, uh, having our growth rate drop from 100% to 50%. Right? Mm-hmm. That was, for me, like, oh, we're done. It's all over. 50%, even for a venture back company. Still totally great. Like, you're fine.
0: Right. 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 Well, I, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, per- personally, I've dealt with some depression as well. Yeah. Um,
2: Actually, it's, over, it's over the past so, year,
0: yeah, it's so
2: common, and people don't talk about <sighs> it, especially men, right? Because yeah. it's like you know, it's shameful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, real American men don't have mental yeah. and emotional health issues. Like that's not a thing that men are allowed or supposed to have.
1: Yeah, um, and it sort of seems hard to put your finger on it until you're months into it, or I don't oh, know, for like sure. yeah, right, know, yeah, to You've, recognize yeah. that's what
0: you're experiencing because you think it's just the weather because we live in Seattle, and <laughs> we've had more rainy days than. Ever. Ever. Which is also a thing, I suppose. That's a, that's a real thing, right? Sad. But uh, yeah, for sure, man. I, I appreciate your, your willingness to share share it in the open because uh, it feels like you crash through the fear that I have, which is um, I'm afraid people are going to realize I don't have my, anything together and I'm, yep. I'm on the edge of the cliff at the same time and I'm uh, fearful of that. So I think, it's, I think it's beautiful for you to be in the spotlight, for you to be able to say, yeah, I dealt with this. This surreal thing, and here's all the facets and factors that impacted what I was experiencing at the same time. So I'm really excited to read your book. Oh, um, thanks, man! And yeah. once it launches, if you want to come back and talk about, oh, it, I would, you're I would to love you. to. Do you have yeah. a title yet? Right. Yeah, uh, they. So right now, the title that
2: my publisher likes best is um, "Minimally Viable," hmm. which I. I like uh, okay. super in love with. Them. There was there's another title that I really liked, uh, Lost and Founder,
0: mm, which I thought was great. But I like um, that. yeah.
2: We'll, we'll see where we get to. And then okay. uh, the subtitle I think is the the mostly awful, sometimes awesome truth about starting a successful tech company. Wow, that's great. So, Sweet. Which my, which my editor came up with, and I, I was like, that That's it. It's great. That's you it. earned your money. Like you're great right <laughs> yeah. at this. You know, I can write,
0: but titling things has always been a struggle. Gotcha. Okay, shifting, shifting topics. Um, so, uh, for context, the way we even ran into you in the first place, right? So, Phil and I, we were at uh, Inman Connect, yes, the real, the real right. estate conference in New York, um, and then a week later, I'm. Uh, I'm Which at, wait,
1: pause. You were the first person to bring like super actionable content to the stage. That's true. <laughs> we were really
0: thankful for that. So we were eating it up yeah. and taking notes because I was some. like hating on uh homie from Million Dollar Listing where I was like, you're just talking about yourself. Come on, Friedrich. <laughs> you know, anyways, whatever. Um, yes, so you had tangible takeaways that were like actionable. And it's like, do this oh, thing. Do this. More and people I, will find yes, you. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, and then I run into you at a refugee, um, uh, a, a Trump protest. Right. right? For uh, the refugee ban. Mm-hmm or against the refugee ban. And, and that wasn't
2: the one in New York, which we also That went was, in, to. Seattle. That was the one in Seattle. Yeah, so we're yeah. back in
0: Seattle. I'm down in Westlake, mm-hmm. right? I'm I'm leaving and I'm like, "Rand, what in the world? <laughs> I have to take a photo with you. Yep. <laughs> this is crazy." Um and I might have even been a little starstruck. I I totally like <laughs> I fanboy 100%. I see somebody and I'm like, "I should probably say something." You know, anyway, so thank you for like humoring oh, of course, me. Yeah. But then I reached out to you on Twitter and you're like, yeah, I'll be on your podcast. No big deal. Oh, totally. Is this something you do? Like, is, are you like, you know, you're like, Hey, yeah, you tweet me. Okay, cool. Or
2: no, I, well, so, I mean, three things are definitely true. Yes. I definitely go to protests. Well, of course. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Uh, uh, Yes. I, I hate acting like someone who, I, I don't know, has some sort of. Uh, fame or recognition—that's just not me, right? Yeah, like internet famous among SEOs. I don't think that counts. <laughs> that is yeah, like that know. is the <laughs> least famous form of Have famous you that you can signed be. Signed anything for anyone? Well, yeah, but okay, not. Uh, I've never had anything of mine signed sold on eBay for I any see, real I amount see. of money. Okay, okay. So how about that? Okay, I think that, that, works. that that's the that works. litmus test for for actual okay. fame. Okay. Um, but then yeah, uh, I actually do a tremendous amount of you know podcasts and speaking at events and cool. conferences obviously um, and you know writing and a, a big part of that is my personal passion for helping people understand this weird world of SEO. And then I think it's also uh one of the things that I am relatively good at, mm. right? And mm-hmm. it, you know, it feels nice to uh, get to use your skills and strength. So I'm not a software engineer right. by trade and um, you know, could probably write two lines of PHP and they wouldn't run. Uh <laughs> and um and so, you know, often feel a little uh frustrated when there's there's big projects at Moz that I wish I could contribute to. Right. Uh, in other, you know, directly. And so marketing and product design and yeah. those sorts of things are, are generally where I spend my time.
0: Yeah, well, I'm so I'm a huge fan of uh, Whiteboard Fridays. Oh, yeah. Um, been a sub- longtime subscriber, um, which is great. Uh, so thank you for doing that. But um, but I, actually back, I wanted to ask you about more of the activism thing. Yeah. Um, can you want to talk about maybe a few of the things that you're passionate about and uh, yeah. whether they're Seattle... Related or, um, you know, or nationally related. Uh, I mean, I would say that, that, um,
2: my wife and I are, are relatively, uh, passionate liberals on, you know, numerous issues. Uh, the ones where, um, I would say I spend a lot of my, well, let's see. I do a lot of, uh, speaking gigs where folks offer to pay. Um,
0: this is a free podcast think Inman by the way
2: connect <laughs> did actually do this as well. Uh, so I don't accept, uh, any speaking fees or honorariums. Um, but I do direct, uh, those funds. So I ask the events where I speak to make a, a donation and that's sometimes, you know, a few hundred dollars if they're a small local organization or up to many thousands of dollars if they're, if they're bigger, uh, to an organization, a company called, the uh, 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 give directly and they're a charitable foundation. Um, And they basically give money directly to uh, very poor folks. Uh, Mostly, Mm -hmm. I think they started in some rural parts of Western Africa, and then they are uh, also in South America, and they're now in some uh, American communities as well. Cool. And so, uh, what I love about them is that many people don't believe it works Mm -hmm. and think that it's uh, total crap to give, you know, to directly give money to. to poor folks and, and struggling folks, uh, but in fact, you know, the only overhead that they have is basically data collectors who mm. follow around and track the, the the people and families who received this money and then uh, see what happens. And a very small amount is spent on you know what folks would call vices, right? Like mm. things like drugs and alcohol. Uh, I think it's like four percent, but mostly it goes to um, improving people's homes. Uh, buying things for their businesses, getting education for their kids, mm-hmm. exactly what you would want, right? And then it, it turns out that that will have a, has a dramatic positive effect on the overall economic health of these communities when lots of people who are very poor in those uh, uh, areas get this influx of capital cool. um, and are not told what to do with it, Yeah, right? Like they, they make the decision for themselves. Turns out poor people, quite good at recognizing mm. things that will improve their lives and the lives of their kids and neighbors. Yeah. Uh, and that's where they spend their money. And so I, I'm kind of hopeful that that leads to, um, more programs like it. And obviously, uh, it's cool to see those, you know, $5,000 can make a huge amount of difference, uh, in a place that where, where people are, you know, on average living on a few dollars a
0: day. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Back to your wife. Yeah, Geraldine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so she just is about to release a book.
2: Is that right? That's right. It's coming out next week. Okay. Uh, so she's a travel writer. Uh, many years ago when she got laid off from her her job at a startup company. Uh, do you guys remember the board game Cranium?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So she
2: wrote a lot of the questions for Cranium and was like an editor there. Um, and then they got bought by Hasbro. And Hasbro basically shut them down and laid everybody off. Uh, and... When Geraldine got laid off, um, I uh, we started traveling together on a lot of the to a lot of the places that that I'd go to to speak, and so she started this travel blog called The Everywhereist, um, and it's uh, it's done really really well. She got you know featured in like Times twenty five top blog twenty five blogs of uh, the year and, and
1: Everywhereist
2: yeah Everywhereist dot and uh, and then two years ago, I guess, uh, wrote a book, uh, last year, pitched it to some publishers and, uh, and now it's, it's coming out next week. Exciting! That's uh, yeah. really exciting. Cool. See.
1: cool. Well, as yeah. we wrap this up, um, I have one SEO question for you yep. and Tyler, I'll have a Seattle question for you. But, um, so a lot of people in our audience are small business owners. We have a lot of small business owners on as guests and, um, and also, I think we just have some casual, you know, DIY um, blog owners that are in our audience and listening. And so what mom bloggers, I guess, for lack of a better term, for, for a casual um, website, what are some, maybe what are three basic things that they could do to bring more traffic to their website? Sure. So let's see. I'll and we're going to take notes because we have a small website too, <laughs> Yeah. For a Seattle podcast. Sure.
2: Yeah, so I think a lot of people, when they publish on the web, uh, don't, don't think about how people search the web, and really should. Um, and, and so my, my first bit of advice would be, uh, one of the easiest ways to do this is start typing words and phrases that you might think people would use in Google mm-hmm. to find you, or the blog post you're about to publish, or the piece of news you're about to publish, or the name of the podcast that you're about to publish. Um and look for how Google auto completes those, right? So they'll make a bunch of suggestions, right? If I type, if I start typing Seattle R E, they'll suggest Seattle real estate, Seattle real world, you know, 1999 or whatever <laughs> year the real world came. <laughs> right, right. But so yeah. those those types of suggestions will indicate to you, oh, those are things that people search for to find this thing, like Google's nudging me toward it because it is a popular search query. Mm. You can also scroll down to the bottom of any search and you will see related searches. And those are more words and phrases that people type into Google. Um, Moz has a tool called Keyword Explorer that lets you get much more sophisticated on this. And Google has one in their AdWords program that lets you get very sophisticated. But even just the basics of let me title things the way people will search for them can help A tremendous amount.
1: So that'd be the title of a blog post then? The
2: the title of the blog post, the title of the news article, the title of the podcast uh, episode, right? Uh, The title of the web page, if it's just a page you're putting up. Yes, all those things can be very helpful. And Uh many, many websites, tragically have like the brand name as the title of every single page Mm, on the site. So Google has no idea.
0: Windermere.
2: Yeah. I mean, what any of those are about, right? It's just, it's it's pretty terrible. Um, If you have a page about, you know, Ballard uh, home prices going up, don't call it windermere.com. Like that, (laughs) no. Even with the right slug? (laughs) Yeah, I just, you should title things in a way that describe the content of the page, mm-hmm. right? And hopefully you should do that in a way that people are actually searching. So that's tip number one. Okay. Uh, tip number two, I would urge you to get in touch with the people who already know you and like you and want to support you and ask them to link to you. Mm. Somewhere on their website, link back, put yeah. a link to your website in any way that they feel that is authentic and endorses you. Uh, that, that is a wonderful thing.
1: Yeah. Does that count on uh, Instagram or how does it? Uh, Yes, ish. So those things will certainly potentially
2: drive traffic, which will um, have a positive overall impact. But those links from social media sites and that like sort of anyone can create. So going on Reddit, for example, and then like leaving a bunch of comments that link to yourself. Th- those actually have an attribute called no follow, mm. so Google knows, like, oh, this is a user-generated comment on some random website. No, I I'm see. not going to count see. that okay. uh, in my algorithm.
1: But so links on a website are more valuable than on Instagram or Facebook or yeah, or, or in Instagram.
2: blog right. comments or social okay. media or you know these types of open places where anyone could leave a link.
1: Right. Yeah.
2: Um, definitely more valuable. Uh, and then, but uh, my my third piece of advice uh, for any website owner would be. Even if you think there's no chance that you will ever, ever use Pinterest or Instagram or Reddit or you know, name the top 10, 20, you know, social media or community site of, of your choice, please still go get your brand name there mm. and go put up your profile mm-hmm. and your photo and you know your your bio and say something about yourself. Just hang on to it. You never know whether in the future you will want to contribute to those places. And it really sucks if someone else has your brand name mm-hmm. or you haven't claimed it or someone searches for you on those platforms and, and they can't box. find you yeah. and you don't exist. The, those, can, those can help your overall web visibility cool. as well. Awesome.
0: What is the next social media that platform that we need to be grabbing our handle on? Um,
2: boy... That is spot that is a good question yeah. i it, it it's probably snapchat although snapchat is like so super popular now that right um everyone knows about that i i was gonna say yik yak but i actually heard they're kind of falling apart ah. so maybe that's good news okay <laughs> i don't know. To know i you know as a as a as a gen xer right <clears> you sort of have this are you kidding me <laughs> do you, re- you really need another <laughs> one that, that does that i i don't
1: know but uh Gary V always says, look over the shoulder of the 14-year-olds and see what they're on. And that's the next next thing. So here's where I disagree.
2: When I was 14, I also thought email was super lame and Mm. that I would never use it. And that the only thing I'd ever be on was, was it Friendster at the time? Yeah, Friendster. That was probably when I was 17. But then you get to be 22 and you want a job and then you find yourself in your 30s and you're like, gosh, I sure do use email a lot. So... uh, Look over the shoulder of the 14-year-old if you want to know what 14-year-olds are using.
1: Okay. Mm, fair. That's good. Right? That's fair. Uh, Gary Vee's
2: advice is great, but it's not like um, everyone in the world is suddenly on Snapchat. In fact... Crazily enough, uh, I think was two two weeks ago or three weeks ago, Instagram Stories surpassed Snapchat.
0: Mm. Yeah. More people used Instagram Stories because no, there's more users of Instagram, it's which makes to, sense. Yeah,
1: your audience is already built in. Yeah, it's already yeah. built in.
0: Yeah,
2: I, but it's one of those things where I, you know I just have this like, well, you know, don't d- don't d- definitely grab your username there. If you find your communities on there, you should participate. Wonderful, right? Like that. Those are smart marketing tactics. But don't anticipate that everything the kids pick up is mm-hmm. going to suddenly be.
1: And he's coming from a context or, of a venture capitalist trying to find the next horse to oh, bet on. Well, if that's too. the case, definitely you should do that. Yeah. but he, I think the, his point was like things age, right? I, I don't even know if "ageify" is a word, but like Facebook was college kids, and now, yeah, I mean, he's even
0: publicly it. said like I, I spent this time building a platform on Twitter, and now I don't even know if it's necessarily as valuable as I thought it was, but. Which, which, I think if you're in the limelight in any way, it, it's always going to be beneficial, right? I mean, I'm, Twitter is insanely powerful. Uh, yeah, right? I mean,
2: I think that. Yeah. I think that the the uh, argument that the you know markets have against Twitter, which is you're only growing your user base five or ten percent uh, year over year, is maybe a fair argument, right? And Facebook's growing faster. Mm-hmm. Okay, but on Facebook, you know. Uh, I get to see one out of a hundred things that you post Mm. because my feed is full. On Twitter, I can see every single thing that you post. And so if you post something that happens to resonate with an audience and with a large audience, Mm -hmm. it can quickly make its way across the web. And then it will be featured on the news that night because Twitter is not private. It is public. And then, you know, celebrities and famous people will pick it up and talk about it. And
0: Twitter can... Which goes with your openness mentality? I yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Twitter
2: works works really well. Instagram's yeah. nice like that too. You know, unless yeah. you make your account private, everyone can see it. Yeah. So it That's has good.
0: that. It's sort of the visual version of Twitter. Right. That's great. Okay. Uh, last two questions. Um, so at the end of every show, we ask our guests guests what their hopes are for Seattle. Oh, right. Yeah. You've been here for a while. Uh, we also right. oh, ask right. them. Well right yeah, yeah, well you're born in New Jersey though, right? Or Okay, what's, what's
2: technically you're right. I was born in New Jersey. I moved here when I was three months old. Oh yeah, that's fine.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you've been here your entire life. Um not born but raised in <laughs> yeah. Seattle. There
2: are pl- there are plenty of Seattleites who are like, You're not a real Seattle. Oh come on. <laughs> well, you've
0: been here three years, I think you're Yeah, seriously. I've been here since 09 I call myself a Seattleite, so <laughs> Um, yeah, so first question. So what what are your hopes for the city as you see the rise of our economy? Um, and just so, I mean, I think it's 1,100 people who are moving here every week. That was the most recent census. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, my hope is that Seattle takes, continues to take the cautionary tale from San Francisco and invests deeply in density. Um, I hope that we continue as a city to be um, very liberal and not just in our names and vote, you know, and our, our, our self aggrandizing nature mm-hmm. but and voting patterns, but also in how we um, make intentional efforts to help uh, redistribute income and opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that is a, a huge part of what it has meant to be a Seattleite, and I hope that continues to be the case. I would love to see Seattle. Um, improve its diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that is a, a, tough and tall order, especially considering how unaffordable the city's becoming. Um, I think there's things that we can do to help that, right. Projects that we can invest in. Um, I think one of the things, one of the things that you can do as a, you know, as a good Seattleite is when you see a large building going up that is blocking your view or, that tore down that cafe that you used to love when you were a kid, you should say, thank God we're doing that. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, oh man, that too? I hate this new architecture. Oh, I hate how all the buildings are so tall now. It used to just be homes here when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Stop yourself. Stop yourself (laughs) and then say, what do you actually believe in and want Mm -hmm. for the future of this city and this world? Do you want massive inequality and nimbyism? Mm -hmm. Or are you really looking for you know, equality and diversity and opportunity uh, spread among many people. And just catch yourself, catch your friends when they do it. Yeah. Remind them. So that, that's a big hope of mine.
0: Excellent. And then concern?
2: Um, let's see. I think my biggest concern for Seattle is that we become overly. Dependent on one or two companies, Mm. and I see a big portion of downtown and South Lake Union and even Capitol Hill becoming essentially an Amazon, uh, you know, um, just wholly controlled ecosystem. Right where like you know high percents of the residents and a high percentage of the businesses are entirely reliant on Amazon paying these huge salaries to these mostly young people.
0: Yeah.
2: I think that's a, that's pretty scary. I, I would urge city planners to be cautious in what they let one company do, mm-hmm. um, as far as as ownership goes. Because Amazon has certainly had a very successful last you know ten fifteen years. Uh, past success is not always an indicator that the future is going to be bright and sunny. Uh, I'd just be I'd be careful. Yeah, that's
0: great. Right. Well. <sighs> Brand, we've come to the end of our convo, unfortunately, but I know you've, you're, you're a busy guy and you probably got to get out of here. So thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for your, your vulnerability, uh, your honesty. Uh, mm-hmm. Thank you for your thought leadership in, in the space, and we hope nothing but the best for you. Um, thank you. You can find Rand if you want to follow his work. It's at Randfish, and that is on, I'm assuming, Instagram, Twitter, all, all of the things, all of the social Rand things. Randfish is usually where you find uh, right. Randfish. Rand um, Moz is at Moz if you want to find out more about that, uh, or moz.com. Uh, and then you mentioned Everywhereist, which is Geraldine, your wife's um, sweet blog that I am excited to go read. Yep, yep. Um, if you want to read all about our, our trip to Japan, which was pretty amazing, that's going to be up in the next few weeks. Sweet. Cool. Sounds good. And then look out for the book, of the, well, two books, uh, <laughs> your wife's your wife's book uh, coming out very soon and then really excited about your book. Are you going to do any like pre sell stuff or is it uh, Probably, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm still in the writing it
2: yeah. phase. The rough draft is done. And so it's just editing, but yeah, Sweet. Uh, I think, I think my publisher said it'll be out April of next year.
0: Great. Well, all of the best to you, my friend. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate, I appreciate it. it. Yeah. yeah.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me guys.
0: Rise Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird.
1: A special thanks to bravery music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter, at TheRiseSeattle, and use hashtag RiseSeattle to be part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.